The Autonomous Chemical Weapon, How Sentient Oil Took Control of Our History, by Jed Bickman, published in Apocalypse Confidential on September 11th, 2022, from Cyclonopedia, by Reza Negarastani. Capitalism was here even before human existence, waiting for a host. The contention is this. Not only do we use oil, it uses us. Not just oil, but the fossil trinity, oil, coal, and methane, each unique substances, and yet unified by the chemical energy stored in carbon bonds. Humanity has been possessed by these demons that now control us, fuel. Oil, in particular, has usurped our collective agency with its own by dominating our own political systems. Human history is now petrohistory. Does oil want global warming? Absolutely. Look at how hard it's worked to get from beneath the ground up into the atmosphere. Does it not look like a desire for catastrophe? Does that diminish human responsibility? No. Why would it? Section 1. Mineral Consciousness Cyclonopedia. The curse of survival goes beyond intention, will, and orientation. First, to overcome your initial rationalist hesitance, we must establish that all things have a type of sentience, not sapience, but persistence. This work is being done by, among others, Jane Bennett, whose thing power she places in an intellectual tradition that goes back to Spinoza, who said, Each thing, as far as it can by its own power, strives, conatur, to preserve in its own being. Bennett translates conatus as to strive, explaining, Conatus names a power present in every body. Anything will be able to persist in existing with that same force whereby it begins to exist. Deleuze translates it as the right of the existing mode. Zola Jesus released a 2011 album by that name. Bruno Latour uses the term actancy, a word I prefer because it's in English and because of its proximity to agency, which is the word that I would most like to use for oil's power because of the double meaning of agent as either an independent or a representative of an industry, like an insurance agent. However, the word agency has become so contested as to be functionally useless. See EndNote 1 for more on this. EndNotes can be found at thespouter.substack.com. Everything has actancy, including but not limited to plants, animals, and fungi, but not of the same degree or type. It can be incidental and slight relative to, say, an individual human, or it can be overwhelmingly powerful. We will necessarily find a dog's actancy more relatable and understandable than a fungus's, because we share the dog's animality. However, the cement upon which the dog treads also has actancy, 
by the fact of its existence, it pushes back against the dog's paw. This is only interesting to a point. With most objects, the observation is mundane. Obviously, the hammers of my typewriter are acting upon the paper on the platen. Bennett's project is ultimately to get us to respect ecologies and ecosystems, and that is admirable, accurate, and supports a viable rights-of-nature legal strategy. But if we realize the personhood of forests and lakes, can we also recognize the moral culpability of materials like plastic, specific pollutants, and oil? The attributes of a thing determine the nature of its actancy. One of the interesting attributes of oil is the chemical energy locked within its carbon bonds, so easily released by combustion. This energy gives it exponentially more potential to act than most everyday objects. Indeed, it is the root source of the expanded actancy of all the everyday objects that matter the most to us and have changed our lives our cars, our phones, our food, and so on. Often when thing power is discussed, it's assumed that non-living things have less actancy than living things because consciousness is so wonderful and therefore that humans must have the most of all. I enjoy having a consciousness, but if there is one thing to be learned from living through American politics in the 21st century, it is how little actual power a person has, how little the interests of human beings matter to politics. So little that even when accumulated into a unified force of the people, it is still usually powerless against such massive inhuman actants like oil and capital. We'll get dominated every time, at least in the last 110 years, since the end of history and the beginning of petrohistory, which I'll put at 1912 when the Royal Navy switched to oil. 110 years is no time at all, historically speaking, especially from the perspective of mineral consciousness. We're talking frames per century, per millennium, as Felipe the Gaucho says in Gravity's Rainbow. A novel that closes, A Soul in Every Stone. A mineral consciousness would exist on a different time scale than an animal consciousness. Nagarastani's fictional Colonel West calls it alien time, exposure to which carries the risk of chronic side effects or something even worse, something irrecoverable and beyond our bloodiest dreams of frenzy, smoke, and ash, which in comparison will come to seem like the harmless daydreams of unsophisticated, naive innocence. Perhaps that better characterizes what we all know is true of petroleum, rather than the notion of it as an inanimate object. But petroleum isn't a mineral, it's organic. It is the product of the descent and pressurization of an entire epoch's biosphere. It is life, and therefore unique to Earth. You may find things that you can burn on other planets, but you won't find petroleum anywhere that doesn't have organic life. It is life's assemblage with geology. I'm not arguing that oil is alive just because its components were once alive. I do believe in death. But it was once alive. 
and it has a will to persist, and in that, a will to power, a book in which Nietzsche writes, Do you know what life is to me? A monster of energy that does not expend itself, but only transforms itself. A play of forces and waves of forces, at the same time one and many. A sea of forces flowing and rushing together, eternally changing. Do you believe that death is the end? People seem to believe that because these materials affect humans, and because humans profit off of them, that makes them humans by proxy, or under human control. One reason for this is that people aren't used to talking about the actancy of non-living things. Another reason is that oil corporations have, by funding a campaign of denial, forced us to talk about anthropogenic climate change, to counter their sociopathic assertions that there's no such thing as climate change at all, or that it's somehow natural. It is in recognition of humanity's actancy that we take responsibility for global warming, and that is proper, but reductive. The strength of oil's actancy comes from its movement up through boreholes, into pipelines, up the distillation column differentially, through markets and into engines, which engineer the combustion at the end of the fuel line, the fire that drives the flow of fluid throughout the oil machine. The movement down and back up again out of the earth generates power. Its ascent and reemergence flows down an energy gradient from highly concentrated, fully metabolized ancient corpses to parts per million. Accumulating there at the low end, in the atmosphere, with nowhere left to go, and so once again amasses itself to accelerate the ultimate realization of its process. The Tellurian Omega, the heat death of the Earth, or at least a nostalgic recreation of its lifetime biosphere. We humans are essential as stewards of the flame, the combustion is indispensable to the maintenance of this flow, and we build the ignition switches. Essential to and complicit in hastening the Tellurian Omega, but we remain mere servants of the flame. Section 2 on names. From Cyclonopedia again. The dead god is a god who has taken an avatar or who has fallen to the grund, the so-called chthonic god. The laws of gravity must be complied with and the logic of the ground must be affirmed. This is the route taken both by humans and by the avatars of the outside. Dead gods become open to eat and defile, to immerse themselves in mess, entangled both by the immensity of the outside and by earthborn restrictions. The dead god is not a tired, abolished, or doomed god, but a god with a weapon of catastrophic destruction. A plague coming to the earth to make of earth's restrictive ground a direct passage to openness. In the Zoroastrian Vendidad, Druze is the greatest polluter of Ahura Mazda's world. Ahura Mazda is the creator, and so his world is our world. Druze is 
The dead mother of all contagions. Best to think of her as genderless. Druge is the decay that takes over a corpse, Nasu, upon death. The catalyst for its decomposition. The inevitable returning underground. It would not be hard to imagine that Druge has even more power beneath, in the layers of putrefaction buried for eons, in the product of the long-term process of anaerobic metabolism. It is not such a leap from believing in the scientific reality of organic metabolism to see that oil could be the distilled essence of Druge an energetic being with much more potential actancy than the chemically inert rock it is buried among. Druge has utterly remade the human experience from what it was before industrialization. Indeed, it has remade humanity itself into the lords of the earth, the destroyers of nature itself. Lifted us from animalism, from living like animals in the colonizer's tongue. And in the process, added energy and warmth to the atmosphere, creating this world of constant cataclysm, of constant cataclysmic opportunity and markets. Now that climate science has shown us clearly its terrifying power to insulate the earth and drive the ecosphere mad, why should we now stop calling oil an avatar of a superhuman, a god, or a demon? Why should I have to use boring phrases like fossil fuels, natural gas, and global warming? That ain't my job, and it's not why you're here. This power is a trinity. Coal, oil, and methane, each with different properties and different roles, and yet all one. Avatara in Sanskrit means to descend. The divine chooses to descend to the mortal plane in order to, in order to do something, to change history, whether it's making sure the Pandavas defeat the Kauravas or accelerating the Tellurian Omega. Vishnu descends to the material realm, most often as a non-human animal, in order to gain actancy, which is the one thing gods do not have. In this case, the descending being was already material, plant flesh mostly. The living realm in turn undergoes catabasis, chthonic descent, into the subterranean realm, the plateau of black matter where the chemistry of God is more fertile than ever. God chooses to be a corpse in order to be a protagonist, from Cyclonopedia. A protagonist of Earth's history and of human politics. The dead God is not omnipotent, just exponentially more powerful than human animals, and yet tragically bound to those humans to keep its flame alive. A fire jinn. A daemon that has chosen to confine itself to the material plane in exchange for becoming a protagonist in material history. Yes, a similar claim could be made about almost any natural resource, each with their own personalities and actancies. But fossil fuels are the kings of history, and oil the king of kings, since, in part, it contains the domain of plastic, the king of materials, 
since it controls agriculture in the form of nitrogen fertilizer and so on. The king that dethrones coal, but is faced with a strong upstart contender for the throne, methane, which is simultaneously doing its part to hasten the Tellurian Omega by seeping unburned into the atmosphere. So don't call it drilling for oil, call it exhumation, the movement from the Turanian surface to underground and back up through holes in the earth, fract holes that undermine the surface of the earth, making it more porous. The effort to exhume Druge is turning the ground under us inside out, releasing the dead god into the atmosphere, where it will be truly free, free to make us burn. Perhaps to hasten the Tellurian Omega in which all earthbound energy will be returned to the dying sun in six billion years? Or merely to mimic that Omega, to reproduce it in war machines? Section 3. Oil's Attributes Timothy Morton said, Modernity is the process of oil getting into everything. According to petrohistorian Timothy Mitchell, a single liter of petrol used today needed about 25 metric tons of ancient marine life as precursor material. When plant energy accumulates like that in animals, we call it meat, when it accumulates in the belly of the earth, it's a greater concentration of energy, and we call it petroleum. Ground meat. Meat that non-alive machines can eat, fattening everything, not just human tumtums. Oil, coal, and methane are the largest and most powerful actants in the world at this historical moment, with effects that reach long into the future. They have created our urban world, and they are insulating the planet Earth into the most abrupt mass extinction in history. This trinity gained its seat of supreme authority over the surface of the Earth by acting upon humans and our assemblages, by manipulating our politics. This trinity wasn't always the dominant oligarch it is now, and it won't be forever. Other sets of materials, like drugs or food, may vie for significance, but ultimately, in today's world, all their power is predicated on fuel. It's a question of scale. Post-industrial humanity has become supernatural in every way that matters. Fuel lies at the base of every other enterprise and comprises the mountain of wealth that is being hoarded by the arch-capitalists. Whether it's driving for an hour and arriving somewhere 50 miles away, or watching a live video from the other side of the world, it doesn't happen without fossil power. It could, hypothetically, we can get power from other sources, but by and large, we don't. And so all companies are oil companies. The only business is the business of converting chemical energy into wealth. But only some companies sell the stuff. See endnote 3. Oil allowed industrialized economies to create massive surplus value, which at some times in its history was shared with some of its workers and at other times not at all. 
The scale of the fueled economy radically dwarfs anything that humans had before experienced or generated. Carbon, temperature, economic growth, on different x-axis scales, they all look identical. All the graphs go hyperbolic, which the scientists have chosen to call the hockey stick graph, even though it doesn't really look like a hockey stick as you hold it. The hyperbolic flight path of gross product and consumption is an evolution and integralization of its wartime shape, the parabola. In the flight of the rocket, the hyperbolic movement is in the slope of the curve, the rate of change, and the destructive descent of war, oil's own creature, which cleared the decks for the petroliberal world order. The hyperbolic path of consumption of the 20th century proved to be the attainment of escape velocity, the machine detaching itself from the people who fired it, becoming autonomous. This machine has been referred to as capitalism, a word that doesn't describe some sort of ideal state of uncontrolled markets, but rather a messy and quite authoritarian historical reality. From Cyclonopedia, capitalism is an epidemic openness whose eventuation is necessarily equal to the abortion of economical or human openness. As far as survival is concerned, radical and pandemic horror, the horror of the outside emerging from within us as an autonomous xenochemical insider and from without us as the unmasterable outsider. Oil is the horror of the inhuman terrestrial insider emerging from within the corporation, the constituent agent of capitalism. The oil corporation is the progenitor of its own butchery, seeking only to continue to profit off of the conflagration at the heart of that destruction as the age of catastrophe dawns. But if the price of oil crashes... Those suppliers lose some of their economic power relative to the rest of us who merely burn the stuff, and who would happily switch to another energy source if one were available. The hope of environmentalists has been that the price of fossil energy goes up enough that we will not be able to afford it anymore, and that the market will magically switch us all to solar panels. This hope of peak oil was nurtured by the very oil corporations that profit off of it. Because, as Cyclonopedia says, affordance molds a horizon of mutually economically secured openness which accompanies both sides. That is to say, affordance manipulates history to perpetuate its object. We will always be able to afford oil. This is why the weakness of the oil company is cheap energy. The corporation tries to manipulate and support oil flows and prices, but ultimately it is vastly less powerful than the oil itself in its fecund plentitude. In the end, the corporation is only human, limited by our animal selves. The dead god prevails. Part 4. Petrohistoriography from Cyclonopedia, for every inconsistency on the surface, there is a subterranean consistency. Consider the surface inconsistencies of the events that Peter Dale Scott calls deep events, 
like JFK and 9-11. Pivotal moments, but instances when history is marred by inconsistencies which drive some people mad. Following Lieutenant Slothrop, the quest for the subterranean consistencies of these events is sometimes called paranoia, which reaches its purest form when it's all true. Well-documented, thoroughly researched truth that nonetheless marginalizes everyone who talks about it. All of the intelligent people who study this parapolitics will acknowledge the central role that oil interests play in deep history. But they will accurately argue that other factors must be considered as well. Of course. But I am concerned that this obscures the centrality of oil and its human agents in the 20th century. There is a consistency with which everyone's interests are soaked in oil. The specific political agenda of oil matters hugely, both historically and at the present. I'm not arguing that there is a universal spirit that unifies all oil, something outside of history. Separate flows of oil are differentiated, as we all are, by its time and place. Also, the flow of oil itself is separate from the human organizations built to manage and profit from its flow, the corporations and their cartels. In his book Carbon Democracy, Timothy Mitchell follows Michael Ceres in describing the oil corporation as a parasite on the flow of oil. I see more complicity and more antagonism in this relationship than is contained within the concept of parasitism. But I agree that the corporation is subordinate to the material they sell. In order for it to retain its place as the first mover of the human economy, oil needs to stay cheap enough to make any other energy source look expensive. But it also needs financiers to manage its capital, lawyers to advocate for it, engineers to build the infrastructure, soldiers to guard it, and, to a much lesser degree than coal before it, actual workers. The price must support and enrich that industry. In order for the flow of oil to be maintained, the demand for oil must also be maintained so that it can be reliably converted into capital. From the beginning of its industrial exploitation, the problem with oil has always been the same. From Timothy Mitchell, there was always too much of it. To be more precise, there was too much of it in too few locations. And so the price of oil needs to be managed for the benefit of both the buyers and the sellers. It's too important to be subjected to the whims of supply and demand, since there's always enough supply in the ground to crash the price. The logic here implies sabotage and cartels, because even one independent producer, say Venezuela, could crash the price. As an oil empire, it is not enough to have adequate reserves. You've got to exercise control everywhere on the planet at all times. Over and over in petrohistory, you'll see them go to inhumane and absurd lengths to gain control over an oil field, and then once they've got it, they leave it undeveloped. See Note 5.
So the object of petropolitics is not to produce oil or to accumulate more oil to exploit, but to shut the other guy out of the market. War creates opportunities and tactics for sabotage, and it creates a permanent, reliable over-consumer of the project. As it says in Gravity's Rainbow, the true war is a celebration of markets, organic markets, carefully styled black by the professionals, spring up everywhere. Not only styled black, but also markets styled free. And not just markets in the sense of the space in which transactions occur, but also that of creating demand, of manufacturing buyers. Follow Enzian as he rides into this ex-refinery, Yamf Oblerfracken Work AG, is not a ruin at all. It is in perfect working order, only awaiting for the right connections to be set up, to be switched on, modified precisely, deliberately, by bombing that was never hostile. Negarastani, Pinchin, and Deleuze and Guattari all emphasize one key point. War is a machine. In Cyclonopedia, there is a rogue American colonel, West, who sought to grasp war as an autonomous entity. He did so only after he learned, the meaning of war is only to be found in the search for the meaning of petrol. Enlightenment, as spoken of by the jihadis, is the realization of this fact. As a fictional career American soldier, the jihadis were his longtime brothers-in-arms in the service of the great war machine. At their point of origin, Saud, they were collaborators. All belligerents in war are on the same side, the side of the war itself. People think that war is a part of human nature, and that may be true. But this particular military-industrial complex that we've been living with for the last 110 years is an oil machine. A machine of industrial sabotage. A battle to monopolize the market by selling to both sides and by destroying competitors. A machine that is capable of spectacular feats of carnage. And also the only thing funding technological innovation. This long war machine can be broken down recursively into smaller and smaller war machines, down to the level of specific atrocities. The overabundance of energy guaranteed by oil creates a perpetual excess of production, not only of oil, but also of war. Fuel decouples productive capacity from the human demand for any one product, including oil itself. War creates a key avenue of overkill to absorb, consume, and pay for excesses in production. This is equally the case of oil itself and of the production of the manufactured goods it enables and, in the case of plastic, embodies. Weapons, in particular, can be stockpiled with no limit. The more, the better, always. If it were used only for human needs, oil would be too powerful for material capitalism. The logic of oil requires the overkill of war to destroy its massive excesses and to create weapons markets for oil that aren't bound by human needs. 
and along the way to shut down as many oil pipelines as possible. The relationship of the dead god to the war machine, so intimate and yet not coterminous. Oil seeped from the beginning of its adoption into the war machine, into civilian lives. You can't quite say that oil is the war, only that oil needed the war to gain saturation and dominance over human lives. The meaning of war. An engine of consumption was jump-started by the war, one that created a few generations of wealth on an inhuman scale, beginning from the start of the Great War, which was fought not only over the spoils of colonialism, but also over avenues to cannibalize and financialize that excess value. The Accursed Share, see Endnote 6. Too much wealth being made, too much capital, too much material from coal and from colonial expropriation. It can't be given back to the people, so it must be burned in the war. Part 5. Petro-History from Cyclonopedia Petro-political undercurrents with oil as a global conspirator function as telluro-occultural lubricants on which everything slides, advancing in all directions. Although they are not identical, the material history of oil is intertwined with the political history of its producers and with the war machine. Once one gains an understanding of this history, current events, such as the Ukraine war, become much more legible. My goal is not to give a complete or authoritative history, but rather to move fast and fill in some of the interstices. I divide the landscape of American oil interests into two bulbs of money that erupted from different streams of oil, the Texan Nexus and the Atlantic Complex. The Atlantic complex is the big one. It grew out of European colonialism and was fed first by Baku, controlled by Nobel in the 1870s, back when oil was mostly used for lighting. It included the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which would become BP, which produced oil in Iran and shipped it both west into Europe and east into India. Royal Dutch Shell, also owned by the British. And the big one, Standard Oil. In the late 1800s, Daddy Rockefeller started building the monopoly over oil services with the huge capital he had amassed from coal revenue that was trust-busted in 1911. That complex legal affair was handled by Sullivan Cromwell, where John Foster Dulles successfully created a swarm of allied Standard Companies. The Texan Nexus was founded by a white evangelical terrorist, Patillo Higgins, who bombed a black church and shot a cop in Beaumont, Texas, in 1880. Ten years later, having found religion, he started teaching a girls' Sunday school class and, of course, fell in love with the one of the miners in his charge, Gladys Bingham, who he promised to marry one day and then presumably raped. One day, he took his girls to a place outside of town called Spindletop, where, according to his telling, he smelled petroleum. He bought the land and started drilling for oil. 
Ever a fuck-up, he screwed up the drilling, wasting so much capital that his investors were able to oust him from control of the venture, though not from his shares in it. Until 1900, when the country celebrated the turn of the century with the gusher that began the stream of oil that funded the entities we now know as Texaco, Chevron, Gulf, Phillips, Conoco, etc. The people who got rich in the Texan nexus like Clint Murchison, Haroldson L. Hunt, and John Healy, must be considered heirs of the prophet of Spindletop, Patillo Higgins. Subsection A. The World War Machine. Modern petrohistory began in 1912, when the British Royal Navy converted their fleet to oil. Before then, oil was still technically competing with whale oil for lamplight demand. Coal did all the heavy lifting of the first phase of industrialization. There was a very limited demand for oil, especially compared to the vast reserves already discovered and exploited in Baku. Of course, at the time, the Brits were prepping their navy for war, for the Great War. Here, Daniel Jurgen though he be a neoliberal, earns his quote. World War I was a war that was fought between men and machines, and these machines were powered by oil. And it was the first such war. Oil was burned first not for industry, but for war, and World War I was the first full petrol war. The first and still the largest institutional-scale buyer of oil is the war machine. The history of oil can only be told as the history of the military-industrial complex, to maintain Eisenhower's historic turn of phrase. One point of tension that had led to the Great War was the Baghdad Railway, a proposed venture by Deutsche Bank that threatened the Anglo-Persian oil company's monopoly over their markets and in their own colony in India. Rockefeller backed Britain's efforts to block the project, which helped to clarify what side of the war the American government should be on. But other American interests, including a significant share of the Nouveau-Riche-Texan nexus, maintained their partnerships with the Germans. Many of those investors were clients of the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, where Foster Dulles became a senior partner after the war. The war killed the German rail project as the Allies wanted, but tremendously boosted the ascendancy of oil. After the war, in 1925, Ibn Saud, a warlord who had formed a coalition with Islamic Puritans, captured control of Mecca and Medina. Five years later, tourism to the holy cities crashed because of the global depression. He had his Englishman, St. John Philby, negotiate a deal to sell the oil rights in Arabia to the company that would become Chevron. From this deal forward, the Saudi family became an extension of the Texan nexus, a Texan creature in the Middle East. The Saudi government didn't get control of Aramco until 1988, and even now its culture is American. In 1931, a wildcatter named Dad Joyner found the East Texas oil field, which turned out to be the largest one yet. 
This huge, fresh flow of, of oil by independent producers caused the price to collapse, pissing off the cartels. After four months of this, the governors of Texas and Oklahoma declared martial law in the region and sent in the National Guard to occupy and shut down the oil wells. The major general of the Texas National Guard just happened to be the general counsel to Texaco. This tactic, exported abroad, became the model for the relationship between the already dominant oil majors and the military. Dad Joyner was bought out of his oil riches by H.L. Hunt. In the interwar years, Foster Dulles began a complex merry-go-round of transactions that funneled massive U.S. investments into German industrial giants, as David Talbot writes in The Devil's Chessboard, including the multifaceted patent trading deal between Standard, Shell, and IG Farben that is the backbone of the plot of Gravity's Rainbow. Not only did that deal create the modern plastics industry, it also created a hedge against American oil for the Nazi war machine in the form of coal hydrogenation technology, which allowed Germany to make 2.5 million tons of synthetic oil in 14 hydrogenation plants around the country by 1938. As we know, Standard, Phillips, Texaco, and Shell all sold oil to the Nazis throughout the Second World War. But had they been stopped by embargo or sanction, Standard had already taught IG Farben to liquefy coal, which was domestically available within the Third Third Reich, into an oil substitute. Western oil could then potentially mobilize this as an argument against blocking oil exports to Germany during the war. It would make no difference if Rockefeller kept selling to Germany. They'd be able to fuel their war machine with synthetic. So the Allies might as well keep taking the profit. Of course, in reality, the Nazi war machine was ever thirsty for oil, insatiable, and would burn anything. The Dulles brothers were creatures of the war machine. From afar, it might appear that Allen acted upon history more than his older brother did, but Foster set the agenda. The working dynamic between the brothers had been created at Sullivan and Cromwell, where Foster's authority was impregnable. Foster's biggest client was Standard Oil. Foster had helped Rockefeller maintained the vertical monopoly over oil services after it was broken broken into separate companies, which was a complex task that involved many stakeholders in the Atlantic complex, yes, but also with affiliates in the Texan nexus. Both sets of interests were firmly aligned, even if they ended up on different sides of the war. Because Foster was a Germanophile. He really loved his business with Germany, even from back when his client Rockefeller was pushing for intervention on the English side of World War I, but much more so after he had helped his clients get rich off of the Versailles debt structures, and well after the Nazis took over. This is why he opened Sullivan's Berlin office and made a big show of crying when they had to close it in 1935 so Sullivan employees could stop signing all their correspondence, Hail Hitler. 
All his partners, including his little brother, had to stage a full intervention to get Foster to stop openly supporting the Nazis. And what did he do? He cried, pitifully and dramatically, according to all accounts. What a fragile little fascist who needs to be punched. Oil was the strongest thread in the rope that connected German and and American industries throughout the Second World War, although oil-burning corporations like IBM had plenty of room to participate. Meanwhile, oil was fueling an, an increase in capital circulation that made it necessary to begin talking about a new thing with, with its own actancy, the economy. Before that, the word economy mostly referred to the process of managing resource distribution in an efficient manner. But after John Maynard Keynes put the definite article in front of it, it became a new object of politics that could justify power itself in lieu of the fading divine right of kings. The Dulles brothers fought a different World War II than the rest of the country. The rest of America was fighting the Germans, the Italians, and the Japanese. The Dulleses were fighting Stalin. Russian oil had always been a real enemy of American oil. That is why American oil companies, including Standard, fueled the Nazi war, war machine to invade Russia in 1941. American oil companies, plus Shell, would rather have had Baku in Nazi hands than in Soviet hands, because that's what our Operation Barbarossa was all about. The result was Stalingrad, one of the greatest tragedies of the war, and it was only by making a massive sacrifice that the Russian people were able to defeat Hitler and end the war in Europe. Stalingrad was fought over the oil works at Baku. While the Russians were doing that, Alan Dulles was meeting with Karl Wolff, plotting to cut the Russians out of the upcoming peace deals. It didn't technically succeed, but his wish to join with the Nazis came true as he absorbed huge numbers of the Nazi personnel and technology into his organization after the war. It seemed like one of his main objectives was to piss off Stalin, and in that he succeeded. In truth, he almost needn't have bothered. Truman, whose orders he had treasonously defied in negotiating with Wolf, was already threatening to nuke Stalin's troops. On the way to kicking Hitler's ass and winning the war for everybody, the Soviets had occupied the oil assets in northern Iran. Truman turns this into a major international crisis in 1946 and forced Stalin to surrender these assets to his buddies across the pond at the Anglo-Persian Oil Company at the end of the nuclear barrel, still warm from the year before. The pivot to enmity with Russia after the war seems overdetermined, at least from the American side. In sparking the Cold War, Dulles and Truman were working in the interests of the war machine itself, which didn't want to disband just because it had defeated one opponent, who was never really much its enemy as its collaborator in producing war. The supposed threat from the Soviets was always mostly fictional. Right at the beginning of the revolution, the Bolsheviks had expected the workers of the world to rise up spontaneously around the world. But when that didn't happen, 
First Lenin and then Stalin had adopted a policy of socialism in one country, meaning that they had no real interest in fighting for control of other countries. No imperialist ambitions, in stark contrast to the Americans. Petrologically, the Soviets were mostly interested in developing their own sources of oil and helping their allies like Iraq under the leftist Abd al-Karim Qasim nationalize their oil industry. Everything that happened in the USSR after World War II must be understood in relationship to a USA that was pathologically bent on its starvation and destruction, a sentiment that wasn't reciprocated. The monomaniacal campaign by American Cold Warriors fatally perverted whatever the USSR could have been. Another victim. Perhaps without this paranoid antagonism from the states, communism could have thrived. But the military-industrial complex could never live and let live, not in, not in as advanced a stage as it was at the close of open war. We might ask ourselves, on whose behalf were the Dulles brothers acting, really? What was the real force behind the force? A multiplicity of interests and industries, of course, the accumulated network of privately held power. But I think that first among these had to be the oil industry, upon which everything else came to depend. Throughout the century, oil worked itself into every other major part of the economy taking over agriculture beginning in 1909 when the father of chemical warfare, Fritz Haber, introduced nitrogen fertilizer, and taking over manufacturing and durable goods with polymers, ushering in an era in which any physical form that could be imagined could be created in plastic, and all of it needing to be moved around. With the growing importance, the growing usefulness of oil to everybody, the oil producers gained corresponding influence in power and in politics. John D. Rockefeller, the name so powerful it had to be carried by two different men. Rockefeller nurtured the Texan oil nexus, not as competition, but as a means of strengthening and expanding his own empire. Long gone were the old North-South animosities of the 19th century. Subsection B. The Genocide. The World War II machine successfully transformed into the national security state under the Dulles brothers. That effort included the Korean War and hundreds of other illegal operations around the world to murder and overthrow legitimate governments. It also included the transformation of McCarthyism from a circus show into a paranoiac fantasy that would justify the actions of any of its believers, anti-communism. This Dulles machine finally consolidated power with a series of assassinations from 1960, when they killed Adriano Olivetti, to 1968, when they killed RFK. They simply killed anyone who, who could have possibly offered an alternative to their own hegemony. Not a subtle tactic, but it worked. And the one in particular. 
Others have already convinced you, both you and I, that Dallas in 1963 was a major turning point in American history, a point at which a better, more pluralistic future was foreclosed upon. Dallas was the administrative capital of the Texan Nexus, a convenient four-hour drive from their infrastructural investments in Houston. In the words of Jim Garrison, psychotic, oil-rich millionaires ordered and paid for the assassination of JFK. Oil men, they called themselves, these descendants of Patillo Higgins. These men were allowed to get wildly rich by the Atlantic shot caller John D. Rockefeller, who could literally pick the winners and the losers of the oil industry, both with his monopoly over refineries and services, but also with his enforcers, the Dulles brothers. So it's worth rehearsing some of the oil connections to the Kennedy murder, acknowledging that we'll never know the full extent. Since 1926, Texas oil companies had enjoyed a tax giveaway called the Depletion Allowance, that had allowed them to keep 27.5% of their revenue tax-free. At the time of his assassination, Kennedy was pushing to eliminate this tax concession, infuriating the likes of H.L. Hunt and Clint Murchison. George de Morenschelt, who groomed Oswald as a patsy, was a petroleum geologist who worked for various oil companies his whole life. Of course, LBJ himself was a Texan, and although I find it unlikely that he was party to the specific plot to kill the president, he certainly played his role historically in, re- in reversing the policies that the killers objected to. Of course, there were non-oil men in the conspiracy, like the Cubans, but that is no reason to let ourselves be distracted from the fact that oil spent the next 10 years using American power to consolidate its grip over the whole world in an orgy of violence that spans the entire third world. The paranoid logic of the Cold War had reached Brenchluss and was raining down death everywhere. Meanwhile, as the easy oil available in the continental U.S. dried up, the bulk of oil production moved to the American-owned operation in Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. became a huge importer of Middle Eastern oil. This arrangement kept the price of oil quite affordable for most of the 60s, which facilitated oil's total saturation of the American economy. At the time, the narrative around oil supply largely mirrored the reality of the Great Lakes-sized reserves, It was seen as effectively infinite, even renewable. Geologists were arguing that oil reserves are constantly being renewed even as they are depleted, like an aquifer. There were dissenters to this cornucopian view, but they were understood as outsiders and threats to the industry who should be silenced. Subsection C. The Invention of the Environment. Cut to October 1973. OPEC was meeting in Kuwait to negotiate a new state tax rate on oil. Since Aramco was an American company that merely paid the Saudis, the Texan nexus was well represented at any OPEC meeting. At the time, Henry Kissinger had been pushing hard for higher energy prices to justify opening Alaska to energy extraction. See Endnote 7. The Gulf states wanted a higher tax rate. 
There was a consensus in the room. Everyone wanted more money. During the OPEC conference, Egypt and Syria, not OPEC members but both American allies, initiated the Yom Kippur War. America saw a new outlet for its war machine, a consolation for its recent final defeat in Vietnam, and not only backed the Israelis, but actively prevented the negotiation of any peace deal. OPEC successfully negotiated its tax rate, and then the next day the Saudi oil ministers announced from Kuwait that they would embargo oil sales to the United States unless we allowed negotiations to take place in the war. That OPEC meeting had been planned years in advance, easy to schedule a war around that. The energy crisis was consummated. It is pretty clear that actual oil imports to the U.S. didn't change at all, as other producers filled the void in the market. There was no material scarcity of oil, but prices shot up. This shock was welcomed by the executives who were getting rich off of it, but they worried it would be short-lived. They needed something to support the price of oil at high levels over the long term. At the same time, the public discourse of infinite renewable oil reversed, and oil came to be seen as an irreplaceable limited commodity, a non-renewable energy source, which was much emphasized. 1973 was also the year Limits to Growth was published, and it was extremely popular. Oil companies saw it as a reason to justify higher prices and inflated margins. Oil's interests were successful at framing the politics of the environment. Meanwhile, people were saying things like, Russia has enough nuclear warheads in the world to destroy, to destroy the world 80 times over. We now know that there is still enough fossil fuel left in the ground to scorch the earth at least three or, t- three or four times over. But we still think of it as a non-renewable resource, something that will run out of someday. This idea of peak oil has ebbed and flowed over the years, and it is usually compelling because individual wells and oil fields do run dry and only so much of the oil is sitting in conventional reservoirs near the surface waiting to get pumped out. But the higher the price of oil, the more of it becomes available, as companies are able to frack harder, drill sideways, boil rocks, shale oil, etc. Oil makes more of itself available as it is exposed to larger amounts of capital. Higher prices facilitate the excavation of, hyd- of hydrocarbons. This perception of scarcity is a victory for the oil companies because it doesn't matter how much oil is in the ground. We have to stop or at least radically slow its flow into the atmosphere 10 years ago at the latest. But back in 1973, easy oil was flowing strong everywhere it was produced with Aramco in the lead. As always, even during the energy crisis, there was too much of the stuff. The energy crisis generated windfall profits, wealth on a scale hitherto only imagined. 
By then, the whole economy was entirely dependent on oil, and so high prices were an efficient mechanism to vacuum money out of people's pockets and into the hands of any power that was needed to play along, especially the Saudi family. It was one mechanism that accelerated a wealth transfer from poor to rich that has left us as humans entirely powerless. And so the business alliance of the Americans and the Saudis, the family, not the country, became the axis around, around which history turned for the next 40 years. At the time, America had the same relationship with Iran, and it expected that to continue, but of course that ended in 1979. The conversion of oil into capital creates a balance of payments problem. In this case, the West was constantly paying dollars to the Saudis for their points on the oil. Eventually, the Saudis would accumulate all the dollars, and the Americans would have to find ways to make more dollars, and at some point, inflation goes parabolic. That was the threat in the 70s. The producers needed to buy something back, something that is made by the consumption of oil. Usually such purchases are bound by human need. A country only buys as much grain or durable goods as it needs. But a country needs more oil than the sum total of all of those exportable products. Oil requires another product that can be accumulated independent of human need to flow in the opposite direction. The only such product is weapons. The larger an arsenal, the more powerful it is for its owners, without limit. Therefore, the energy system operates as a triangle trade whose three sides are oil, capital, and weapons, the trinity of war. But when weapons are stockpiled, they are inevitably used sooner or later. This dynamic is commonly associated with the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but it is inherent in the material attributes of oil, its centralization and its utility, and can be seen throughout petrohistory. Adnan Khashoggi, the son of the Saudi family doctor, positioned himself as the middleman for these weapons purchases and became the richest man alive. He put the cash into BCCI where the CIA could use it for off-the-books operations. The flow of weapons to the Saudis and Iran normalized itself as a necessary and utterly bipartisan fact of the world, even while our ideological commitments and another massive flow of weapons stayed with the settler colonial state of Israel. Israel was valuable to, to American oil as a source of constant conflict, as an engine of the war machine. Back at the beginning of the Zionist project, there had been some Americans, like James Forrestal, who opposed Israel because of, because of their own oil investments. But Forrestal was kinetically defenestrated in 1949. The machine favored a perpetual aggressor, a rel- a reliable source of violence to sustain the flow of weapons to the Middle East. Conflict is the combustion that oil needs to keep growing, and a fresh genocide in Palestine was a promising asset. And that is why 
its deployment of itself into the atmosphere is such a brilliant guarantor of its own supremacy into the future, because as we all know, climate change generates more conflict. And so the U.S. adopted a policy of prolonging and exacerbating every local conflict in the Middle East. Before 1989, Islamic fundamentalists, especially the Sunni fundamentalists patronized by the Saudis, were natural allies against the Soviets and and an excellent weapons sink as they fought in Afghanistan. Stop me if you've heard this one. Subsection D, After the Wall. These arrangements in place, the war machine could be assured of survival after the Cold War. In 1989, America opened, CN Note 8, opened Russia to the free market, and after pillaging the economy, decided that they still didn't like the Russians. Meanwhile, they continued to work with Sunni, read, Saudi-backed fundamentalist groups. The oil companies turned their attention to the still vast reserves of Central Asia, The fact that Baku had been tapped for more than a hundred years didn't mean that the Caspian was dry, and the Soviets weren't competing in the region anymore. In 1992, Chevron struck a deal to spend nearly $10 billion in nearby Kazakhstan. In Azerbaijan, the Daddy Bush administration was pushing for a pipeline from the Caspian across the Caucasus to Turkey under the cover of the mega oil company, American agents set up an airline to move the Arab Afghans to Azerbaijan from Afghanistan, where they had defeated the USSR. Bin Laden set up his base of operations in Baku, from which he launched anti-Russian operations in Chechnya and Dagestan. In 1993, the oil companies directly sponsored a coup that wrenched Azerbaijan into the U.S. sphere of influence. Unicol, which is Chevron, wanted to build a pipeline across Afghanistan, so they financed the Taliban's operation to seize Kabul in 1996. But the Taliban wouldn't play ball with the pipeline plan. The nationalist leader Ahmed Shah Massoud opposed it. And so, on September 9th, 2001, Massoud was assassinated. On September 10th, 2001, Bush Jr. held a cabinet meeting to discuss a plan to invade Afghanistan. Then, on September 11th, the war machine was given a new perpetual enemy, never mind that it had been an ally before. Baby Bush and then Obama managed to maintain both their alliance with the House of Saud and their ostensible enmity with its associated fundamentalists. The fact that the majority of the hijackers were Saudi was not relevant to the war on terror. The cognitive dissonance of this barely added to the psychosis that most Americans were under by then. Subsection E. Vermiculating Machines and Rock Boilers During the 9-11 wars, America switched from being an oil consumer back to being a net producer. That's one of the reasons why, despite the common sense that the war in Iraq was about oil, no one quite understood exactly how that could be the case when the U.S. moved so slowly and incompetently to restart the Iraqi oil industry. 
It was because at that time the goal was to simultaneously control and restrict the flow of Middle Eastern oil. Iraq and Iran still both have, both have massive, largely untapped oil reserves. But the American oil men were back in their own fields again, playing with new toys. Regardless of whether it was ever profitable, shalers and frackers needed markets to support their vermiculating machines. The shale boom was funded entirely on credit. According to the industry, to break even on a barrel of shale oil required sustained prices over $54 per. But that, was a nu- that number was packaged for the investors. The reality is that it would require oil over $100 per. While the, from 2014 to 2022, the price never went north of $82 per. Shale oil was a massive money loser during that period, making it one of the only bad investments of its era. And yet capital was so cheap that there was never any problem with financing whatsoever. Energy began flowing out of America in 2015, The fantasy of the American roughneck returned in the form of man camps, driven by investment strategies that assumed future payoffs against current losses. Sooner or later, those investors would require a spike in oil price, at least long enough for them to exit their positions. A similar dynamic held sway in fracking for methane. American frackers faced the problem of transportation, You can't ship a container of gas across the ocean, so their market would be limited to the Americas without liquefying it to put it on a ship. And so billions of dollars were invested in LNG, liquid natural gas, from 2008 to 2018. A typical investor presentation asserted, share of LNG in the global gas trade expected to increase to almost 60% by 2040. Processing the gas into a liquid and shipping it overseas is expensive, and in a, in a low-price environment, it wouldn't ever be competitive with Russian gas. So, how did they think they were going to get 60% of the global market? Only by finding some way to sabotage the Russians. Set things in motion by sponsoring a coup in the Maidan. Start needling Putin and trying to get his energy off the market. Some were surprised at the speed with which Gazprom 2 was reversed in 2022, but that was the point all along. The fact that the sanctions didn't change the amount of oil and gas being sold by Russia didn't matter. What mattered is that they increased the prices for everyone, and that meant that the sellers get rich. Part 6. The Gases All of that petrohistory was about oil's release of energy, the utility of its combustion, the attribute upon which capitalism is built. We now know that the gases released at the same moment have a vast actancy that long outlasts the engines themselves. The afterlife of oil. It acts upon the climate, insulating the earth. For people who think that only humans have agency, dualists like Andreas Malm, this is considered an unintended consequence. 
For them, the moral equation changed whenever humans became aware of this unintended consequence. At that point, we should have tried to stop burning oil to prevent the worst of the global warming. That would have been nice had it happened. But the most direct actant upon the climate is the carbon itself driving the planet towards a, a specific heat death. Whether by coincidence or by intent, my argument is the latter, but that doesn't matter. Fuel is pushing the biosphere towards another iteration of the planetary regime from when the stuff was last actually alive, the Carboniferous period 360 million years ago, when, as, always, as will always be mentioned first in this type of article, the sea levels were 120 meters above their current level. All of that water that constituted that pre-Pangaea ocean is still here on this earth, and the portion of it that is currently frozen will not be frozen forever. Much of the land that remains unflooded will become desert. The interface zone between these landscapes will be salt marshes, where the remaining terrestrial life will thrive, metabolizing the pollutants of our own century, so fecund that the vegetation could become thick enough to become, following its own eventual descent into the earth, plus another 360 million years, petroleum again. J.G. Ballard wrote in his novel, The Drowned World, Archaic memories of the terrifying jungles of the Paleocene, when reptiles had gone down before the emergent mammals, and since the implacable hatred one zoological class feels towards another that usurps it. Is that what it is after its driving desire? A return to the Paleozoic climate? Or is it, as Negarastani says, the Tellurian Omega through which the earth reaches utter imminence with the burning core of itself and the sun? which is, scientifically speaking, the way that the Earth as a planetary object will end. Every single combustion from the 1860s onward has contributed to the accumulation of carbon dioxide before and after the awareness of that fact dawned. A much greater portion of the carbon in the air dates from after the truth of climate change was known. From the point of view of oil itself, the intended and unintended consequences cannot be differentiated any more than a drug's effects can be differentiated from its side effects. The thing that maintains the flow of oil at all costs was always, has always been, the military-industrial complex. This must be understood in historically specific terms, rather than turning to a constant refuge in theory. This deep state has created a circumstance in which our interests as humans are firmly subordinate to those of oil and its creature, capitalism. War itself has a monopoly on violence, and war is an oil machine. The goal must be to stop or slow the flow of carbon into the atmosphere. As the billboard proclaims, it's not too late to do something about global warming, but later will be too late. We need to subordinate the we need to resubordinate oil to the needs of humans. 
We need collective decision-making power about who gets to burn oil and why. Only with that power can we pursue policies like climate reparations. The goal, therefore, must be to weaken the petrological agents who have seized control of our politics. Oil companies have far too much power. To witness their utter control, look to, look to Stephen Donzinger or Ken Sarawiwa. And they are supported by a deep state that has amassed tremendous power under the cover of anti-communism. This was not historically inevitable. That very fact is why they had to assassinate Olivetti, Hammerskold, Lumumba, and Kennedy. But now their power hasn't been meaningfully contested for at least 30 years. They've had that much time to consolidate and entrench themselves. So, for the first time in history, a human can confidently predict the future. We all know what happens next. The 21st century will be defined by catastrophic, rapid climate change. Because of the effects of the gases released in the combustion of the excavated flesh of the dead god, and in the case of methane, the unadulterated thing itself. We have given one substance power over all the rest of the earth. We are morally culpable for, for doing that, but that seems incidental at this point. We would like to regain control, to wrest our power back from oil's grip, but that doesn't seem likely right now. We are instead going to have to face and live inside of our complicity. What people really mean when they say that climate change is an unintended effect is that it is outside of capitalism's logic. Money was made on the combustion, not on the atmospheric insulation. It is indeed radically outside of capitalism's cap capacity to manage or even comprehend, but it is of capitalism's making. That doesn't mean that it is outside of humans' control, outside of political control. It might be victorious, or the power of the people might reassert itself. Oil is powerful because of the historically specific rapid proliferation of wartime imperial capitalism that is now on the wane. We all feel the imperial decline. We all know that the military is the largest consumer of oil in the world. If we could regain control over our war machine, it would be a huge first step, a necessary first step, toward gaining control over our energy. I call oil a god or a demon, Druze, not to say that it is omnipotent. These lesser gods always have a fatal weakness. The whole point of the Vendedad is that through rigorous practice, humans can keep Druj Nasu out of their homes. Perhaps a new Petro Vendedad could be written that can teach us how to purify ourselves of the resurrection of Druj. Or perhaps it already has, and it's Cyclonopedia, and it just hasn't caught on because it's not an easy book to read. It would tell us to dismantle the war machine, a mortal entity, slayable, but not yet slain. <laughs>